I think Joe's going to win, but like then that's just like the starting gun of this epic amount of work we have to do. It's amazing. Each I feel like every week you sit, we say to ourselves, I can't how I can't believe it got worse, but it keeps getting. There's so many other things that keep happening. You're like, wow. And I do feel like your your other book, The War of War on Normal People, is a real thing. It's, it's gotten that's gotten even worse too. Like the the overlooking so many people and, and that are in need of basic you know, in need of a basic income or an economic opportunity, like that's gotten even worse among all the other, among the big giant problems, that real basic uh, life, you know, and economic opportunity has gotten worse. It's one reason why I think Joe's going to win that 72% of Americans say this is the worst time in American history in their lifetimes. I mean, that's not exactly like four more years material. <laughs> you know, it's like everyone's looking around being like, this is freaking awful. So I, I think, uh, you know, I think we're going to call an end to the Trump era, but then the hole's still going to be there. Uh, so, you know, I just, I have like my shovel in my closet, metaphorically speaking, and I'm just like waiting to, for the word to go out and, uh, and start digging. I've got, uh, I've got so, here, I got uh, just to speak to that since it's right here. Hold on. I've got, a, where is it? Is it right here? I've got a literal real shovel. A literal, shovel. <laughs> a literal trowel that I was using to dig in the backyard for treasure. So, you know, in the woods. So uh, that's where I'm at. A few days ago, I interviewed SNL star and head writer Colin Jost about his new book, A Very Punchable Face, at Sixth and I, which is an art center, uh, synagogue, cultural center in DC. The event was virtual, of course, but had a great conversation. Enjoyed it immensely. Hope you do too. This is Yang Speaks with Colin Jost at Sixth and I about his new book, A Very Punchable Face. Hello, everyone. Hi, everyone. Let's all give Colin Jost a round of applause. He'll be able to hear you from wherever you are, I promise. <laughs> Your book is phenomenal. I enjoyed it immensely. I've been a fan of SNL uh, since I can remember. So let's start with a title, A Very Punchable Face. Uh, you know, I, I think most people like find that funny. Uh, and there's like a theme of self-deprecation throughout the book. Um, so what were the... What was the process behind your deciding on a title? Because I know the title of your first book is actually kind of a big decision. It is. It's like with music, you you put out an album. You could, the first one can just be your name. You know, it's easy. No, you know, it's, that's just like the industry standard. You got an eponymous album, but that's you know, with books, you got to actually think about it. You know, um, I want. I also, before I start, wanted to thank you. Um, I, I was I'm very honored that you that you agreed to do this and talk to me. And I'm a big fan of yours. And I think what you brought to the campaign was such an elevated and fresh set of ideas. And you were just really fun to watch. And also you, you, you like, it was the only new ideas that were out there. And I really, uh, I, I don't know, I, I gained like a whole new uh, like idea of what a candidate could be from watching you. And I hope that your ideas continue and that you continue and, and make them a reality because it was really inspiring to see. So thank you. And, and thank you for doing this because it means a lot. Um, I, uh, 
I, I, I wrote about a lot of, so there's a lot of self-deprecating and humiliating things in my book. I, I really wanted it always, my book to be entertaining. Um, I didn't want it to be uh, trying to be overly educational or pedantic in any way, or I didn't want it to be um, just taking weird victory laps about anything or, or just like name dropping stuff. I wanted it to be stories that I thought were, were, you know, that were funny and that people would, would like reading. And, and I, I ran everything through that filter and it turns out a lot of those stories ended up being ones where I was injured, um, or <laughs> humiliated or emotionally abused or, um, you know, just by my own dumb decisions, uh, got injured or put in a terrible position. And I, I thought, you know, that would be entertaining. And it seems like people do enjoy when I, when, when, uh, you know, injurious things happen to me. Well, I, I confess that after reading your book, like you did start to resemble one of those action movie heroes in my mind where like you take your shirt off and then there's like this scarf of that. This is from like the Google mishap. This is from the bike. This is from the surfing. <laughs> so, so you started to resemble that kind of figure in, in my mind. Well, you. Wow. You're also, as, as we all know, you're engaged to uh, and like a superhero that, you know, everyone's grow growing up with. So there's that too. Maybe that's another reason why you seem like an action hero. I was going to um, say you're a real superhero, but also that's not, she's, it is a movie, I guess. <laughs> so I confess to being, and this is one thing I liked about your book too, is that like, you, you know, your book was very, very personal. Um, but like you said, it wasn't like a name dropping type book. It was like personal about your childhood, personal uh, about your formative experiences, which were very funny, like consistently. Um, I, you know, I feel like I understand Staten Island better thanks to, to, to your book. And, and also I, I happen to have seen, um, King of Staten Island, uh, you know, relatively yeah. recently. And so like between that and, and your book, like, I feel like I understand the fifth borough, uh, hopefully it's not an insult to call it the fifth borough. <laughs> that's, I, that's one of the nicest things anyone's ever said about Staten Island. <laughs> Staten Island, we're part of New York. <laughs> it's true, it's real. <laughs> we swear, we swear. <laughs> uh, and, and so you went from uh, Staten Island, you went to high school in the city, which also had many, many funny um, anecdotes. Certainly the most affecting, very, very quintessentially New York story, I thought was the story of your mom and her bravery uh, during 9-11. Uh, and I was in New York um, on that day. Like I remember when... The towers fell. It was a beautiful day in terms of the weather, like, you know, not a cloud in the sky. And then you hear that a plane crashed in the World Trade Center. Uh, and I was part of the crowd of thousands that just started walking away from downtown. Like I was near the Empire State Building. Uh, I showed up to work and then this happens. And then everyone in the office is like, we should get the heck out of here. Um, and then we start walking north. Um, but your mom did the opposite. Your mom actually headed towards the towers, which to me is probably the most heroic thing I can imagine doing having been on the island that day like every human instinct is like go away from uh, uh, from what is happening and she actually went went towards it yeah I mean um, it's I, I, don't, I don't know how that that instinct happens I think she she you probably don't know until that that moment happens how you're gonna handle it and I think it probably for her came from knowing that all her, you know, all the, the firefighters that she knew and worked with and 
and loved were all in there, were, were, were closer or near the buildings. And, and I think she genuinely wanted to help them um, and, and help get them out of that situation or help treat them. Um, you know, I don't think she, I don't think she ever imagined that the, that the buildings would both fall. You know, I think that she didn't, you know, she knew they had been hit and she kind of gradually figured out once the Pentagon had been hit, that it was a, that there was a clearly a coordinated terrorist act, but I don't think she ever thought structurally something like that would happen. I mean, it was so crazy to start seeing happening because you don't, even when things get hit, you know, you just don't expect that to happen. So maybe she, uh, you know, I don't know that she ever thought that, that I don't think she could imagine that that would have happened. Yeah. Well, that, that chapter certainly humanized you and your family uh, in an incredible way, because frankly, people look at you and think, oh, SNL, famous celebrity, engaged to a celebrity. And then when you when you read about your mom rushing towards the towers, uh, the fact that her life was saved twice by firemen who were like right there with her, that the people she was with um, lost their lives uh, that that day. And then you imagine, you know, you and obviously, like, you know, the, your people associate this with uh, with your castmate Pete Davidson as well. Like you, you realize that like the human condition, uh, like it's uh it's your family it's pete's family it's the 343 families that got um uh that got devastated that day who were families of firefighters and it seems like your family has so so much of like the firefighter dna uh like in your uh like your family's history like i i felt like i got to know you better uh, as a result of sharing in that experience it was, you know, it's such a, it's the community I knew the most. And it was, you know, like my, you know, my grandfather was a fireman. My great grandfather was a fireman, all my cousins and uh, my uncles, everyone who lives on my, the block where my whole family lived mostly on Staten Island were all in the fire department. So I knew it forever as this really fun community of, of all these, like, I feel like firefighters are some of the funniest people and, and really, uh, a loving group of people. And then after that, there was a whole other, you know, obviously element to it. And you, and it was even more of a community, but in, in a whole different kind of way. Um, and I thought that one of the most, uh, the things that my mom said that was the craziest to me was, you know, when I went, when I remember going to visit uh, the head, you know, fire department headquarters where they have, they keep wa a, basically a wall of the names of all the firefighters who who died in the line of duty. And she said that in the first hundred years of the department, they filled one wall. And then that day on September 11th, they filled an entire other wall. Like that was that was what the the sheer numbers for the department were. And 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 Staten Island, obviously, including Pete's dad, was part of that wall and a, and a substantial part of that wall on Staten Island. So um, you know, I, I'm, I'm very proud of my mom and that's why I wanted to write that chapter. And, uh, I really feel for her of, of, of going through that and, and losing colleagues like that. Yeah. People, I was, I was surprised by so much of your background because, you know, the, I think the very high level view is, um, you went to Harvard. Uh, that, that's one thing. And you had like a really fun, uh, set of stories about Harvard. Uh, and so you don't think, oh, you know, like, 
uh, mother works for the fire department. Uh, you know, grandfather worked, worked for the, was a fireman. Uh, you think like, oh, he went to Harvard. So, you know, maybe his parents were like orthodontists or, or, or whatever. <laughs> or his, like parents, his parents were president and vice president of Harvard <laughs> or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, or something, right? Like yeah. the Winklevoss. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And then when you went to Harvard too, like you framed it in such human terms where like, there's like this Harvard, like mystique. And then like you unpacked it um, in such a humble way. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Uh, so one of your dorm mates and I became friendly on the trail, Pete Buttigieg. Uh, and so how much time did you spend with Pete when you guys were actually in school together and then afterwards? He, I, I really, I saw him, we were in the same dorm for three years, uh, for sophomore, junior and senior year. And so he was like roommates with one of my good friends from high school. Um, and so I would, I would see him a lot and, and my friend Rob introduced us and, uh, I would see him at dinner because we always, you know, usually ate in the same place. Um, so, so during those dinners, did he lean over to you one day and say, I'm going to be president one day? Did he do yeah. one of those? Yeah. And then, ate, <laughs> and then like, ate a giant, uh, ate like a whole mouthful of French fries and just stared at me, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> no, I, honestly, it, I would have never thought that he would be running for president. Um, I, I, but, but of course, it, things make more sense in retrospect you know, because he was obviously politically minded and he was, I think he studied government if I'm, if I'm not wrong when he was there or, or social studies that included government, but he, um, you know, he was always, he was clearly very smart and he was always really sweet and unassuming and was never, uh, you know, I talk about some people who were at Harvard who were really like trying to make you know they're smart like kind of uh, showing which is, off, which is the most irritating thing in the world. It's like if you like, like if you need to do that, you're probably actually not that smart if you need to try and prove it to me. Yeah. Or, or only later in life, you realize that it's some horrible insecurity that's related to whatever it is, but that you will never be satisfied about in some way, you know, like you'll always be trying to yeah. prove it. 
but he was not that he was always very uh, modest um yet you know and those is the kind of person that clearly is smart but doesn't need to to tell you you know but i didn't know him i didn't know him well i basically i saw him around campus and was always happy to see him but i, I you know we never like hung out much except in an extended group so I'm going to share something that very few people could share, uh, which is that as a candidate, when you see SNL start uh, throwing up the debates, you're like, oh, my gosh, like, what are they going to do with me? And then having you imitate Pete, I thought you did a great job in that it was really funny. Uh, like some of the jokes you actually write in the book, actually, you used for your uh, impersonation um, of Pete. But like, so my question to you was, like, did you ever feel like you were being like, too mean did you ever pull it back you're like oh man like this is actually like gonna make me feel bad <laughs> like if, if i'm too incisive i did and some of them you know some of the debates i wrote or co-wrote and others i didn't so it was interesting because and that's typical sometimes at snl that different people will write different things obviously but I had never been in a, I had never done an impression like, first of all, impression is generous, but you know, I had never been in a sketch like that where it was clearly a lot of attention on it and on the detail of what, uh, of what was being said. And I, having written for it, but not been in it previously, you instantly feel the humanity of the person you're doing an impression of in a way you don't think about when you're just writing it. And it's really, it's like, I, I really wanted to be careful about it because I wanted to be fair to Pete and I wanted, of course you want to be funny, but I, I you know, there were definitely things I, I, I didn't, I said no to and cut and, and, and fought against because I thought they were, you know, either not fair or like not, you know, like either slightly mean or not thoughtful about who the person was and by the way bowen was the same with you like at impersonating he he wanted to be fair and always wanted to be find fun in it but not be you know tearing you down because he respected you and and that's that's typically what it is i mean maya was that way with kamala like she cared about getting the find you know she's so funny as a performer that she's going to find something really funny just on a pure performance level but you know, you start to think about that. And when you are in more and more in as a, as a person that's just on the show to a much less degree in the spotlight, you start realizing how people perceive you or how people make jokes about you. And you're like, oh, my God, I want to I want them to feel somewhat true or fair as much as possible. But I'm sure watching it, even something that seems fair might feel weird or, or having anyone impersonate you is it must be crazy, right? <laughs> well, I'll be sure I mean, you've experienced it in your own way. I'll tell you, like, 100% honest to God, I was just thrilled to be included. <laughs> like, when I was up there, it was like, yes, they've got an Andrew Yang imitator up there, and his, his last name's Yang. Like, And so I think someone asked me about what I thought of uh, Bowen's impression of me or impersonation. I was like, I loved it. Like, you know, it's like some, some people – um, you know, might've had a bone to pick, but I didn't, I was like one, just thrilled that I was included like uh, as part of the, the sketch. Um, and two, you know, I actually had an instinct that Bowen, uh, 
wanted to be fair. Like, uh, and, and everything that he did, I thought was both funny and fair. So I had zero issues with, with how I was presented. Um, but I was just curious in your case too, cause it's not like bone and I really know each other. It's not like we went to college together in that way, <laughs> except for the way that all, all Asians know each other. <laughs> uh, uh, but, it, but, it, you know, but in your case, you and Pete, like, had you socialized again after college? Like, you'd like seen him at a random wedding or any of that jazz? I had seen him, I had seen him once or twice. Like, uh, you know, I had, I had donated when he ran for, for mayor of South Bend because I just, you know, remembered liking him in college. Sure. Like, yeah. I didn't know who else was running, but I definitely knew Pete would be good at it. Uh, and and then I had seen him like somewhere else. I remember someone showed me a photo of the two of us somewhere like at a basketball game or whatever it was or somewhere and then when i first started do like when after the first or second time i played him on the show he was on fallon he was on the tonight show which is obviously like two floors down from us in the building so i went down and talked to him and it was i was so happy <laughs> him, and and i was happy that he was happy to you know seemed happy to see me yeah, yeah. it was a real the, it was it became such a small world because Obviously, he's on a show that's in our building. I was playing him on our show. He was on The Tonight Show, and the other guest on The Tonight Show was Scarlett. So I was like, wow, this is really a lot of many different worlds colliding. Yeah, so that'd be another level, too, is like we actually know the person you're playing. Uh, so that'd be like another level of, <laughs> you know, like, like uh, uh, thoughtfulness, where you're like, oh, snap, I could like just run into this person, you know, a, a little bit down the road. Um, so your transition... For, I'll use that as an excuse for why I wasn't a better performer in those moments because there was so much going on in my head. You know, I'll just put that out. It there. was such a multifaceted performance. You were balancing like 16 things, <laughs> calibrating very, very precisely. So one thing that everyone loves uh, is like the origin story for everyone, you know, like you hit the fast forward button and someone's like, oh, like, you know, a person's made it, they're successful. Um, you do a great job of actually kind of digging into your origin story about your time at Harvard, where uh, you just really wanted to work on the National Lampoon, which you uh, got into or accepted to after like dozens and dozens of tries and like a year of rejection and the, and the rest of it. Uh, and then you came back to Staten Island, lived with your parents right after college uh, before moving out. And then you worked in journalism as the night editor of a Staten Island newspaper, the Staten Island Advance. Uh, and tell us about that. Like the, the craziest thing to me was that I think your shift was like midnight to 8 a.m., which I felt like would make anyone lose their mind. Yeah, it was it really was physically pretty brutal. I mean, I am up for it. I mean, when you're 22, you're up for 21, 22, you're up for anything. So. I was like, yeah, gung ho. But after a few months, you can't you can't avoid your body starting to break down. And it was the worst part by far was commuting. I had just moved to the city with a group of friends. And then that was the job I got back on Staten Island. So after commuting from Staten Island to Manhattan for four years of high school, I finally lived in the city and started commuting back to Staten Island for a job. And that was I would be getting on like an express bus from Staten Island through Brooklyn to Manhattan at 8 a.m. after working all night with people that were waking up and commuting like normal people 
And that was really a pretty, watching the sunrise on a bus through Brooklyn is not, not the most fun. But that job, except for the hours, that job was so fun. I loved that job. I, was, I wrote headlines, which is so fun, trying to think of like New York Post style headlines. Um, I edited articles when there was no one available to write stories. I would fill in and write stories. I wrote a ton of obituaries, which I found like darkly fascinating. I, I really loved talking to the families because I really loved the idea of getting it right, like getting their life story right for their community who was going to read about it. Like I loved the deep, the weird details of people's lives and kind of teasing out the fun parts of someone's story. Um, because when if you first talk to a family, they might not give you that. They might be like, oh, they, they were just like a homemaker. They kind of kept to themselves. But if you dig in so many of these stories, there's a fascinating hobby or some crazy weird period of their life that they, they, they don't think about until you start exploring it. So um, it was really, and it was also thrilling to put together a newspaper, to see it in the era where there were still print newspapers that people read, to see it physically go to the presses and to hear people yell, stop the presses and mean it like a real thing from a movie because a story was breaking or whatever. That was really cool. Did you ever randomly get to yell stop the presses just, just for fun? Oh, <laughs> <Is that> like... <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Then someone really would have punched me if I just did it to yell it. <laughs> no, I did not have that kind of authority. Well, listening to your enthusiasm for journalism, it, it sounds to me like there was at least one point when you thought you might become a journalist. Is that accurate? Or I know you were very, very committed to comedy because you've been working on it for years already. Yeah, I, I always liked journalism and I did it, you know, as an intern throughout high school. Um, and I wrote as a reporter, uh, as an intern, I wrote for, uh, I wrote, I was an opinion writer, like op-ed writer for the Crimson, which is the newspaper at Harvard for a year. Um, but then it really became so much about friends and lifestyle and, and liking the idea, like being around people who are funny and having that element of what you're doing and, and trying to be funny was just so um, intoxicating, I think. And I, 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 whatever I did, whether, whatever my job was going to be, I, I knew I wanted to be around people who were funny and, and try to do comedy in some way, because I, I really, uh, I just thought it made life so much better. Like who doesn't want to be around people who are, who are funny. Oh, I, well, I'm friends with some comedians and I have to say, you seem like one of the best adjusted comedians I know. Cause it seems like, 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 like most of the comedians I know have like, like, like not even that deep under the surface. You're like this touch on a little bit that all of a sudden it's like, Whoa, like you got like, um, yeah, no, I, I know a lot of them, a lot of those comedians too. <laughs> uh, I'm, I am fairly, you know, it's taken time, you know, I work at it. I still have plenty of issues but I work at it. I like go to therapy and work, you know, and work at it all the time. And you discover That's things. That's tremendous. You know, you have to work at it. And, and it's taken, I, I'm in such a better place now than I was 10 years ago, five years ago. Um, but, you know, and I also ignored, I, I, I cared so much about comedy. Comedy was the thing I was most serious about by far. Way more serious about comedy than I was about relationships, about uh, you know, real life things like, 
uh, I don't know, like having a room that was even like livable or, you know, having any sort of comforts in life. Uh, I all I cared about was comedy. So I neglected a lot of elements in my life for a long time. And so I, I didn't have I, I probably wasn't uh, as unhinged as perhaps some other comedians are in, in certain ways. But I had a lot of deep things that I had to figure out because you know, I, I, I took comedy, weirdly, I took comedy more seriously than any other part of life. Yeah, that comes through and you're really forthright in your book about like the ups and downs uh, and the insecurities that come with uh, trying to be funny and becoming a writer on SNL. It sounds like a very, very, and this is not a knock. I mean, you're one of the, you know, like the, the leaders now of this like last generation, but it seems very much like a uh, sink or swim type environment where if someone shows up and they're not funny for a year, they're probably not going to be around for a year or two because none of their writing makes it um, on the show or none of their sketches make it. Uh, and, and it sounds like you had a real adjustment to that uh, that climate, uh, despite the fact that it seemed like you were like a wonder kind, like everything just happened. Um, but it seems like there were some real struggles, um, both while you were a writer and then eventually when you got more responsibility. Yeah, there, you know, there were there were times where it felt like you're on a roll and things are going well. And then there were real stretches where you were worried about getting fired. I, I, you know, I was worried about getting fired a, a bunch of different summers, uh, some as a writer and some as a performer. And, you know, you and, and uh, the plan B was always go to the cabin in Puerto Rico, right? <laughs> right. I, my plan B always, I write about it in the book, for some reason, I, I go to Puerto Rico a few times a year. I love Puerto Rico. I like doing, I like doing fundraisers for Puerto Rico. I, I care a lot about it. And I would go, uh, my, my relatives used to live there, and I, would, I always fantasize that I could just disappear to go to like a sleepy surf town in Puerto Rico, get off the grid. I don't even know, off the grid is a term. I don't even know what that means or I don't even think that practice. We all know what you mean. I mean, for me, it's like that that Mexican town in Shawshank uh, Redemption. It's like, say, Wataneo. <laughs> like we all have our say, Wataneo. So for you, it's Puerto Rico. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think we should, I, when Che and I end weekend update eventually, our last one should be us on a beach in Zewatanejo meeting up Shawshank style. <laughs> Completely. You should totally do that. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't mean to get too into it, but like, are you guys like a, a joint deal where it's like, are you like looking at each other being like, yo, when you're done, I'm done? Or, or, or is it going to be, be like yeah. a... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I would never want to do it without him. I mean... Um, I think he feels the same way. We've talked about it, but you know, you, who knows? I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I don't think either of us would ever uh, begrudge the other one, whatever, you know, they needed to do at different times. But, you know, I, I would love, it would be so nice if we could continue doing something together in whatever capacity, you know, it's, uh, it's lucky to find, you know, when you find someone that you, you, you both love working with and you, uh, you know, you kind of look up to, even though you're working with them. And I, I would love to continue that in some way, you know? Yeah, you get into this in the book where they give you something of like a trial run, a weekend update, and then the reviews are unkind. And I actually can relate uh, to 
getting beaten up in the press somewhat and then you're looking up being like oh <laughs> like what's happening like does this reflect right. on on who i am as a human and then there's like the summer where the folks at snl aren't really communicating with you that much and then they bring you back into like audition for a job that you already had been filling um <laughs> and then and then and then they also had michael che audition and then eventually they settle on the fact that they're going to team the two of you up uh and now that's been a partnership that uh has been incredible for us all to, to see in real time grow but can you talk a little bit about that summer of uncertainty yeah i, I can it was um it was a rough summer for a lot of reasons um and mainly because you're you're suddenly being there, there was the media part of it that was rough. That's one part of it. But the harder part of it was feeling like all your friends who you work with were kind of ghosting you, you know, like they were, no one was actively being mean or anything, but you could just tell they were kind of like taking some distance. There's a little bit of pulling back. Yeah. Yeah. You do oh, sense that sometimes. You, you, know, you sense when they're your friends, you sense it. And I don't, I'm not like, I'm not upset about it. I, I understand. It's just a strange situation, but I could sense that. And it's kind of like, um, when you, I don't know, there, there's a, th I always feel like in, in, in the world of show business, when you're not hearing anything from people, it's a bad sign. <laughs> and, uh, and when you're not hearing anything from your friends, it's like a double pain because you're, you feel like rejected a little bit by, at your job and you you feel like you're losing friends and so you start spiraling and and i didn't know what was going to happen uh because i thought there was a real possibility that i was going to lose my job at weekend update and and maybe lose my job as a writer at the show too or or sort of be impossible to go back to it or or not know or feel so broken up by what happened and i you know and then you're i was used to being in a lot of meetings where things like this would be discussed and to be completely in the dark and all of a sudden they're meeting about you and you're like i remember being in the meetings about other people oh my god and that, and that and then you're like oh and then also by the way it made me feel for in a deeper way for everyone else who were my friends who went through that process too as cast members as writers you know like how i remember will forte talking about he didn't know whether he was going to get asked that they keep putting him on like his contract on extension and not telling him if he was going to continue in the cast one summer and he was out by where Lorne lives, like he was coincidentally staying in the house next to Lorne. And he remember he was talking about hiding in the bushes as he walked around to leave the house because he was afraid of running into Lorne and Lorne seeing him and thinking he was following him and then firing him because of it. And you, it really messes with your mind and you just don't know, no, you think you're you kind of feel like your your career and your life is about to be over, even though that's dramatic. It just feels like that in the moment. You're like, oh, God, I don't know. Will I work again? Will anyone want to hire me? Uh, you know, and, and, and again, when it's your friends, that's that's the hardest part. Yeah, that we we can all experience. We can all relate our own like particular version of that. I mean, obviously not as public um, as you, uh, though, I, I will say for for me running for president, um, it was a real uh, education, you know, it's like you're on TV all of a sudden, and in your case, you've been like writing for a while, but you haven't been as much of a performer. And then you get out there 
Uh, and when you feel like the uh, public is rejecting you or whatever, it's actually like super painful, you know, like you, you, cause you feel like you're putting yourself out there. And then like, if, if people don't like it, then they don't like you, even though they don't know you as a person, it feels very, very personal. And it's different. Like for me, for instance, for you, with you as a presidential candidate, I don't remember ever seeing anything negative about you, like in a great way. Like not, not, not just saying it in a, like, I think people had really thought about you and liked you. And I, in my memory, the coverage of you was always really positive. And if anything, people were more like wanted you to be succeeding even more. Like they wanted you to be the nominee. And they were really, I felt like people, a lot of people were really pulling for you. Whereas I'm sure from your perspective, a couple things that are, go that, that people, you know, and I'm sure you also had things where people that were so excited for you when you started in the media or so whatever, or net outlets in the media, then write something negative or then write something that feels like almost turning against you. And you're probably like, wait, you just were happy or you just were excited. We, we were, we we're friends. What the hell's going on? Like, yeah, you hung out with me on the trail for like days. Right. Yeah. It is. It's super, because, it, you know, there's, there's part of it is like, you're, you're worried about even how you, people that are, you know, you're, you're not always worried about what the person thinks that's writing something negative about you. You almost worry like people you care about in your life will read it and be like, oh yeah, wow, I didn't think about that. He is bad. <laughs> so I thought I knew Colin, but now that I've read this random <laughs> review of him, like it's made me think of him totally differently. Yeah, like it, you, you do. Yeah, you get weird thoughts in your head. Um, and you, and if your friend actually did think that way, that would be a terrible friend. And and my friends wouldn't have thought that, as your friends would never have thought that. But I'm sure that you kind of go to those places in your head, even though you shouldn't. Well, Colin, I had a tip. I have a tip. I mean, you're now well past this, but my know, tip I, for I, myself, I'm, I'm kind of in the middle of it. Was well, I actually know you. You are. Uh, in the middle of it, because writing a book is very personal. Putting the book a book out there is personal. Talking about the book is personal. Um, and there are people behind the book, too, that you, again, feel like you're going to disappoint. Uh, you know, like there, there were folks that supported you in various ways. I went through that with my first book in 2014, which no one even remembers. <laughs> Honestly, so... So you, so you, so I, I know you're, you're still experiencing it for sure. And everyone watching this, you should know Colin's book or listening to this. Colin's book is funny. It's personal. Uh, it's edifying. If you have an interest in comedy and writing and humanity, it's a great book. It's a great read. It's going to do enormously well. Um, but the, the fact that the, but the fact that you're still, uh, in the middle of it, like people from the outside looking in being like, Colin's on top of the world. Like, you know, he must not have any of uh, these insecurities that the rest of us have. I, I, you know, I feel like I'm in the middle, like I, I'm, you know, first of all, I feel like in the middle or or even still at the beginning of, of a career and figuring out so many things and, uh, and always, always, always worried and scared that, I'm, I'm not good enough or I'm losing things that I liked, uh, you know, if, if I'm, if I'm not doing stand up for a week and now because of this for months, you feel like you're losing it, your, your edge at doing it and your ability to do it. And it's kind of a constant fear of, of losing that, whatever it is, uh, both relevancy, but also your just actual ability of doing it well. 
Um, it's like a thing you want to always wow. keep sharp, you know, and, um, and there's so many things I wanted. There's so many things I want to do and I get very overwhelmed and often feel like, why am I not accomplishing more? Why am I not getting this done, that done? Like huge things that I'm like, this is important. And I'm not, I, I'm like, uh, not doing it. Well, you could be like Michael Che and then head uh, to this cornfield in Ohio where they're doing live comedy right now. I don't know <laughs> Michael's talking to you about that. It looks so fun. I keep seeing him pictures of him and Chappelle and Michelle Wolf and people like having a great time. It's so fun. Yeah, yeah. I was joking with Michelle that like the world capital of live comedy is that cornfield in Ohio right now, yeah, I mean, which, which I think is true. The only, the only place. It's it's incredible. So one other thing I have in common with you and Michael Che was that I was a big wrestling fan growing up. And I could tell from your references that you definitely were, too. And then Michael talked you into uh, doing WrestleMania <laughs> with, with him, which got you more street cred among your like uh, uh, your high school classmates and everyone else, which I can understand. It'd be like SNL. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then like you're in WrestleMania. It'd be like, holy shit. Um, so you, you have a very entertaining chapter about. Uh, you guys showing up for WrestleMania and, and that, uh, but do you have a story that was either in or outside the book around uh, that experience? It's funny when you say that too, but you, you also were a debater. So I, you know, I talk about, uh, you know, speech and debate, you, you were, I think doing it on a higher level. I was doing, um, if I was doing like, I talk about it being the track and field of, uh, of, for nerds, like, but you were, you were, you were at an Olympic level, I would say for among nerds. Uh, for your, the U.S. debate team. That's but, nice of you. Yeah, of course. Uh, and But the debaters um, that I was friends with all would go into a hotel room on tournaments or like speech and debate tournaments. And all the debaters particularly would reenact wrestling matches like on the hotel beds. Like yes. w at the time, F, re wrestling matches. And... Those were the and, and and like really got into it, and those were all the friends that showed up at WrestleMania, and, <laughs> and so and I was like living out their their debate high school debate hotel bed dreams in Giant Stadium, and so it was pretty cool that they came and were there for it. That was pretty awesome. Three things that have a lot in common with each other in my experience: professional wrestling comedy politics I kid, you, <laughs> I, I, I kid you not colin like, weird, I, I, weird there are weird overlaps there huh yeah there, there are it, it's like one reason why jesse ventura you know became governor and i'm sure like had world-class potential and people talk about the rock running for president he would do great uh um because like that there were times where like I'd be at some rally and like they had some like essentially like bake off and they like throw you out there and you'd be like, you have five minutes, go. And the, like the frame of reference I used was literally just a pro wrestler. <laughs> it was just like, go out there and cut a promo. <laughs> it actually almost looks like the promos, like back in, you know, the, when they do the interstitial promos in wrestling, they have such a political campaign vibe, you know? And it's like, it's like that wrestler has that whatever, 30 seconds to get their message out and, yep. and taunt their opponent. 
and set up the next showdown. And and it's you know, hey, Trump also appeared on uh, in wrestling. WWE programming for sure. So yeah. keep an eye out for anyone who tries to cross over from one of those three to the other because uh, I predict success. Let's and get that, but that I that so that chapter cracked me up on so many levels because of the fact that I was such a fan. Um, so you talk about so you like came of age at SNL. You know literally everyone who's come through. You've been a head writer, been on Weekend Update, uh, and the rest of it. And like your book, uh, toward the tail end, you talk about this maturation process and how now you're starting to imagine life after SNL. And it could be that this book in some ways is like a bit like the beginning of your thinking about it. You talk also about the fact that now, you know, you're just more mature, like you're engaged to be married, like you're more interested in non-comedy things uh, in terms of like spending time with people. So what might the future hold for you? Like if, if you were to leave SNL, what would you want to work on? Well, it would definitely still, it would still be comedy in, in whatever I do. I mean, uh, you know, I, there's like a horror movie that I'm kind of working on that I've been working that I've thought about for a long time. But even that has element like big elements of comedy. And like I would even something like that, I would always it's hard for me to do something that doesn't have at least some comedy to it. So that's the the broad answer that I, that always be connected uh, to comedy. But you know, there, there are different kinds of goals. There's writing goals I have, there are acting goals that I have, um, and and down the road, there are producing, directing goals that I have. Um, wow. And there are, there are business goals, you know? Like, I, I'm fascinated, I, you know, you know it so well, but the business side of, 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 of so many things is really fascinating to me, and I love using my brain in that way. Like, I... Um, I, that, that's like a, a great outlet, um, that I really, that I don't now just have time to do in the same way. I mean, there's always business involved in whatever you do, but, uh, you know, I, I, it's I, different. I get it, man. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and seeing something through, you know, like, you, you know, you've seen, you know, companies through and that's, that must be a cool feeling, right? I mean, that must feel like, uh, you know, you, you build something, and then it keeps going or someone buys it or, you know, that must have been, those must be thrilling feelings, right? Yeah, it's very much a creative process, Colin, and your instinct around it is spot on. Uh, and I gotta say, um, you and other world-class creatives I know actually have a lot in common with very successful entrepreneurs. Uh, and so the fact that you're attracted to that makes perfect sense to me. Um, I think you're gonna be successful at whatever you do on any of those dimensions. But I, I can imagine you be becoming like a real enterprise builder, production company builder, because a lot of the creative stuff you do, it's like the same stuff. It's like, you know, you have like a vision, you get the pieces together. Um, in your case, sometimes it's just like a sketch, uh, but your attitude is exactly the one you need, which is like, okay, try it, it works, it works. Like, you know, uh, like iterate quickly, don't take the failures too much uh, to heart because you can just get back out there. It's pretty much what entrepreneurship looks like in many, many dimensions. Um, I, I gotta say, like, I love what you do on SNL, but like the sky's the limit for you afterwards. Like the, the end of your book actually got me excited about, uh, about what you could sink your teeth into if you ever decided to leave. Well, thank you, that's very nice. I mean, whatever business you wanna do, I'm in, we'll do it. We'll, we'll split it. Right down the middle, 80, 20 me, and we're in. Let's do it. 
we'll cut Che in two. That way we'll have like three of the major uh, continents covered. <laughs> All we need then is like a Latino and like uh, a couple of other types. Yet somehow. Uh, so I, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm going to go to audience questions, but I had one question for you that came up in the book. It didn't come up in the book, but it, it was a book that came came to mind for me. Um, so you talk about Lauren Michaels as like this godfather figure. He has done so much for so many people, for the culture. We've all kind of had our uh, had our upbringing shaped by Lauren in some ways. Um, and it seems like you and Lauren have developed like a real respect and admiration. Uh, like what happens when Lauren ever decides to to leave? I mean, he is in his 70s. Like, is there an heir apparent? And I got to say, reading this book, it struck me that you would be the logical heir apparent because you've been the head writer, you've been a performer. Like, has that ever come up where Lauren was like, you will be the new Lauren or who's going to be the new Lauren? Uh, does anyone ever think about that stuff? It definitely has not come up. Um, he, you know, I, Lauren is uniquely good at this at this job and I think has gone through so many phases of it. Um, like from when he started and what that sort of, again, entrepreneurial startup vibe probably was of that show when it was in this weird time slot Saturday night and the, and how cool and scrambly to find it, figure it out was to, you know, I think also he probably had very strange periods of time where he had to, it probably even like eighties, nineties, that kind of thing where he had to fire, you know, friends or he had to, um, you know, fire people he even li really liked, um, or had network battles. And, you know, I bet he's evolved. And then all the time, you know, he also got married, had kids, you know, his kids grew up. He suddenly has people on the, in the show that are younger than his kids, you know, like for him, he must have evolved so much as the show went along. Um, there's not been a discussion and I don't know, you know, I, I could imagine him doing it still for a while longer. He's still really, I mean, he's there every day. He's extremely, everyone, almost people can't believe he still is. He still, you know, he still says no to friends, weddings or big anniversary, whatever things that are important otherwise in his life to be there for the show. And, um, I don't know, you know, I, and, and it's, you know, if I thought about it down the road, the hard thing is it's Lauren's show. So part of me always likes the idea of doing something new from scratch after this, instead of continuing it, even though I really do love it. And I believe in it as a, as a kind of like concept that keeps working in, in different ways or doesn't work and then gets fixed or needs to be fixed. And I think, you know, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's such a cool place. And I, but I do, I, I would be, I would kind of have an itch to, to start my own thing, I think. I, I understand that itch very well. Um, and yeah, you know, Lauren will probably be there until he's like 300 or something. <laughs> Come back. It'll be like no, SNL's getting... 240th but... anniversary. Yeah, I know. I know. I'll be like, Oh, great. Yeah. Remember we talked about that. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to now take some audience questions. Um, this is a fun one, and you, you talk about this in the book somewhat. What is your favorite sketch that you've written? Uh, uh, what's my favorite sketch? Um, it's, that's, a, that's a hard 
question because there's a lot of there some certain ones are favorites for different reasons. Um, you know, one of my favorites was uh, uh, writing. You know, as a, especially as a character, was writing with with Cecily. Um, her as the girl at a party that you wish you hadn't started a conversation with. Um, that's been like an ongoing one that I just, she's really such a brilliant performer and writer too. And writing those is really fun. And it feels like a person we all know. And I just felt like it was a good, I don't know, it kind of captured that kind of person well. And it was, it was always, it was always good to come back to. Um, and and actually, her her and Vanessa have these porn star characters that are were some of my hysterical. They're so funny. Those were those are some of my favorite because they're it's not that long. Each one's whatever four minutes long. We've done probably eleven of them through the years, spread out every different kind of product placement weird thing in it that we. And I talk about it a little bit in the book, but they there's so many weird moves in them that I love, like they they have lists of adjectives they just do and then they have weird dark stories from their past lives and then the host is usually a guy that's also in porn and always has some weird vendetta against like someone in high school who said something to them there's a lot happening in those in those four minutes so those are really that's a fun world to start thinking about like what the hell is this now, if you're a fan of SNL, you'll love this book because uh, Colin goes through a bunch of his sketches <laughs> and some of the process. And, it, and it's like a trip down memory lane where you remember like your favorite sketch that, right? You know, you're like, oh, like like the one that made me laugh out loud in the book um, is like the underground, underground music festival sketches. Like <laughs> those are always like just on the brink of madness. Like, and it does remind you of real late night stuff you see where you're like, is this for real? Or like, are these people really going to get together? <laughs> I'm so glad you like that. Cause it really, that is also really one of my favorites. Me and Mike O'Brien, or who's a writer, you always used to do this together. And it was like, and the, and the thing is it, the insane clown posse are really do these gathering of the juggalos. Yeah. Festivals, which yeah. We based on, and they are, and they also contacted us and like sent us stuff you know, like invited us to go to the real festival. And I was like, oh my God, imagine actually going and seeing not that far off from this crazy thing that we put out there and being there in person. And uh, that was a little too uh, scary to do. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say I, I've, I've gone to that level, but I, I've, you know, I've been all over the country uh, and, I, you know, I went to like the first several Lollapaloozas, which were like, you know, a million times, like, you know, more legit than <laughs> the stuff, but like, <laughs> but, but still you, like that. Have you been to every state at this point? Uh, I, th I did a count recently and I think I'm at like 42 or whatnot. There are like eight that there'd never been a reason to campaign in because of our messed up system. Um, so like, I've never, never been to the Dakotas. I've never been to like some places like that, that, uh, you know, yeah. that keep me below the 50, but I'm in like somewhere in the low 40s. Uh, like what was the get like before you were running for president? Where was your state count at beforehand? Do you think, do you know or not really? It was higher than normal because Venture for America operated in a dozen cities um, around the country, including some places I'd never been before Venture for America. So Alabama, 
Missouri, um, uh, like a lot of Ohio. Uh, Ohio is not that exotic, I suppose. I should name a state that uh, I'm less likely to have gone to. <laughs> but, uh, so, so I was. Ohio. <laughs> I, I was. I, I've been to Ohio a lot. I like. I have a lot of friends there. Um, so, including Dave Chappelle and like uh, you know the rest of it. I was actually on the way to visit him when the pandemic hit. I was supposed to go, and and uh, that's why Samantha or Michelle Wolf is still there. She went visiting him for like a benefit, and then quarantine happened, and now she's like living in the guest house. We, we're joking. Oh, they should name the guest house. After her, back and forth. That's awesome. Have you gone? No, out? no. We should go together to one of those shows. Be fun. Yeah, yeah. We 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 should. You, I'd have to get get you know like uh, family approval. Um, but we're joking. They should just name it the Michelle Wolf Guest House at this point because she's been there for like <laughs> like five months in a row. Um, so I think I was at like twenty eight states before the campaign. Uh, so I visited another fourteen. Um, what is the first thing you're going to do after the pandemic ends? Like if there's like, so, yeah, probably something live comedy related, I'd imagine. Uh, something more well, indulgent. My mind went to non-work, <laughs> but yes, uh, sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, probably the first thing is going to be SNL, I would guess, uh, I, or I hope um, that'll probably be the first thing. But I would really love to tra do some kind of travel. Uh, you know, we definitely wanted to do some, you know, like uh, some kind of you know, nice trip at some point, but you know, I don't know when, when that will be or where it can be. Um, but I miss that. I, I you know, the, the other, the biggest thing is just going to be to see friends. I mean, I saw a couple friends that surprised me that came out and surprised me for my birthday. And it was just the most joy I felt in so many years, seeing really good friends that you haven't been able to see and catch like laughing catching up I, I can't believe i it's like it's gone so long you forget how good it feels wow we can all relate to that i mean uh i have a niece that i didn't meet for like the first six months of her life because you right. know my my brother was very like you know like cautious um which you understand you're like yeah i get it but then on the other hand you're like you know, like, come on, I want to be my, you know, I want to be my niece. So like, uh, you know, the, so, so when it, when it eventually happened, like I, I felt some version of the joy, um, you're, you're talking about, we all miss it, man. We all miss each other. Hopefully this book talk is, uh, a simulation of the, the human contact that we all miss. It's almost like human contact. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Wait, wait, we should do a service. That's a good commercial parody that we could write like FedEx, for uh, nieces you haven't met, where they'll FedEx the niece to you, you can say hi. FedEx, FedEx, your FedEx are back. You know, we're good. <laughs> yeah, like make sure she's like wrapped in bubble wrap. So like, uh, I've gotten like some, some, you know, you know, some a friend sent us steaks from Peter. You know, you know, you can probably send a niece. We'll figure it out. Yes. That's the thing about commercial parodies, the the real logistics don't have to don't have to make sense. You just like all magic. <laughs> Oh, actually, you probably had a hand in a lot of these. What's your favorite commercial parody that you had a hand in writing? Like, did, did you write some of those? Yeah, one of, uh, one of my favorites uh, ever is this uh, one that was called Red Flag Perfume. Oh, yeah, Red, with Kristen Wiig, right? Yeah, with Kristen Wiig. That was one of my favorites because I, she, it was like her, you know, she was so great at it. It was like, it was like the prime of her SNL career. And it was like the first uh, commercial parody of the year. And... I, it was like just fun to think about what are the kinds of things that are red flags 
Um, She's uh, lived in Las Vegas for 10 years. Senior nail that's way longer than the rest, things like that. <laughs> it was a really fun. And, and she was just so, you know, so, so good at looks, adding other kinds of visual elements to it that I hadn't even thought of, but it looked beautiful. It looked like a real great perfume commercial. Uh, our director Reese Thomas shot it. And it was like, I remember filming down at the uh, like an old courthouse building or something down by Wall Street that just was this beautiful wood panel, like a space in New York that is so gorgeous and you've never heard of it or seen it. And so it also took me down there. It was like such a wonderful shoot. And, and I thought it came together well. Yeah, those are the best parodies where you're looking at it being like, is this real? Like, it seems so well done. <laughs> and then it takes a... I should have sold the perfume. <laughs> yeah, you left some money on the table there. It could be like your first foray into random like random household uh, fragrances. What's, uh, what's and the, the thing you're going to do, by the way, when you after quarantine? Do you know? I mean, right now... Um, I'm, I'm focused on helping Joe win um, uh, and then hopefully being in position to help dig us out of this hole. Um, so right now I expected to be campaigning for Joe, but as it is, it's just like beaming into stuff, um, which uh, I, I will confess, uh, given that like my kids were starting to forget what I looked like uh, down the stretch of the campaign, like it, it, it's had its silver lining uh, because, you know, like I, I thought I'd be in Milwaukee, like, uh, and, Michigan and um, Pennsylvania and the rest of it by now. Um, so after quarantine ends, I'm sure like I'll be out there uh, because, you know, it's all hands on deck. This is a, a dark time and I, I think Joe's going to win, but like then that's just like the starting gun of this epic amount of work we have to do. Yeah, it's a pretty crazy, you know, I didn't, it's amazing. Each, I feel like every week you sit, we say to ourselves, I can't, how, I can't believe it got worse. But it keeps getting, there's so many other things that keep happening. Like, wow. And I do feel like your, um, you know, just even your, your, your other book, The War, War on Normal People, is a real thing. It's, it's gotten, that's gotten even worse too. Like the, the overlooking so many people and, and that are in need of basic you know, in need of a basic income or an economic opportunity, like that's gotten even worse. Among all Much the other, worse. among the big giant problems, that real basic uh, life, you know, and economic opportunity has gotten worse, which is, that's the thing, that was kind of the one thing people thought they'd get out of, you know, having Trump in office and that's gotten worse. So you're like, what, what is, what is in it? What, you know, what's in it for Americans now? That's what I don't, I keep thinking like, what's the upside? <laughs> uh, it's one reason why I think Joe's going to win that 72% of Americans say this is the worst time in American history in their lifetimes. I mean, that's not exactly like four more years material. <laughs> you know, it's like everyone's looking around being like, this is freaking awful. So I, I think, uh, you know, I think we're going to call an end to the Trump era, but then the hole's still going to be there. Uh, so, you know, I just, I have like my shovel in my closet, metaphorically speaking, and I'm just like waiting to, for the word to go out and, uh, and start digging. Uh, I've got, I've got, so, here, I got uh, just to speak to that since it's right here. Hold on. I've got, a, where is it? Is it right here? I've got a literal a real shovel. A literal, sho <laughs> a literal trowel that I was using to dig in the backyard for treasure. So you know, in the woods. So uh, that's where I'm at. 
That's, that's my, a very lethal looking trowel. You know, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I missed it. Where are you uh, physically right now, Colin? Out in Long Island, like out, uh, out, out east in Long Island. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, so the last audience question we're going to, to get to, I think it's interesting is, um, and I hope you understand what this means uh, more than I do because I just have a vague sense, but I think you probably will. With Gen Z humor being different from that of other generations, what do you think the future of comedy will look like, uh, especially for shows like SNL? I thought this would be a good way to, to end. That's a great question. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, a, I'm uh, technically a millennial, but so I, I feel like I'm, but I, I grew up really knowing Gen X the most, I would say. Like that was a lot, so much of my influence. So I have a lot of the um, uh, desire to do everything of millennials, but I have a lot of the self-doubt and self-hatred of Gen X. So I'll have an idea like, oh, I want to, I could do that. And then I'll be like, no, you can't. You know, like <laughs> I'm, in that, I'm in that combo world. But I think... I think it will, you know, I think every generation finds their own comedy the way they find their own music. And, you know, I, I now in my life, I never want to look back and say that music sucks or that comedy sucks because I remember how many people said that about comedy I loved or music I loved. And now, you know, people are look back at some of those things as classics, you know, and, you know, think about like Jim Carrey and his early movies were some of the most meaningful movies that I saw, like Ace Ventura and Dumb and Dumber. And, uh, you know, every, those were, it's not like those were well reviewed, but they were so influential for, you know, at least a generation. And I think that's going to be the case. Comedy will find what that is exactly. And we might not really know what it is now, but at the end of the day, funny is funny. You know, like people who are funny, things that make you laugh, make you laugh. And there are, there are not as many people doing that as you'd think. Like when you start out, you're like, there's probably millions of people that are really funny. And then millions after a while, you're like, it might be 50 or a hundred or something. You know, <laughs> Uh, just as you, you know, when you, when you think about business or you think about certainly politics, so, you know, you, in your mind, the universe shrinks very quick. Oh my God. And you're actually like, there's so few people I trust or so few people I think are, are good at this. And actually, you know, you find people in across fields actually who you recognize as, oh, they're really smart and good, even though I don't totally know their world you know, you see their, you see them and you see their talent, even if it's not in the field you're in. And um, I don't know, I, I think, I think comedy will keep evolving. It will go through cycles. You know, it will, maybe it feels for some people, it feels sensitive, then it will correct and be way the other way. And, you know, breaking up that. And I, you know, I think it'll, it'll, it'll keep evolving. And uh, I, I'm excited to see where I, so many people are pessimistic about comedy, but I also think there's so many really bright, uh, you know, funny comedians working right now uh, who, who are going to get more and more of a voice. And I think that's great. Well, whatever the future of comedy is, you're going to have a huge role in it. Let's give Colin Jost a huge round of applause. Everyone go out. I think most of you have already bought his book by virtue of being here tonight, but read it, spread the word. A Very Punchable Face is a very enjoyable book. 
<laughs> I would have put that on the back. It's too late. I'll put it that's the, maybe on the paperback, maybe on the, the paperback. You could definitely use that for the paperback, which this will definitely uh, be, be printed in before very long. Uh, so thank you all for being here. Thank you for six and I, Colin, it's such a pleasure. Uh, all the best to, to you and the, the family. And congratulations on a massive achievement. Uh, it, it's uh, something you should be re really, really proud of. And I know how much work goes into it. I know how much you invest personally. Uh, you should be really proud. Thank you. I, I thank you again for doing this. Um, and I, I'm very excited to see your future. And, uh, and, I, and I thank you for doing your part and I, I hope you're a big part of this next administration. So um, I, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.